I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. Well, good evening, everyone. It's November 21st, 2023, and this is Inside Israel. I want to welcome all of you, and thank you for joining. So in terms of the past week, uh, this has been a good one for me. I was uh, touring quite a bit, and a new phenomenon is happening, is that as I travel around the U.S. and Canada, I'm running into people who are joining for this weekly conversation. I was in Valley Village, California, two nights ago on uh, Sunday night at Adat Ariel, and we had a big contingent there. And so if any of you are out there right now listening, particularly Sheila, who I know is a fan and who I happened by chance to pick on during my comedy show, thank you for joining Sheila. And I hope you can uh, forgive me for making you front and center during that event. A lot of news to talk about, to digest. I want to begin not in Gaza itself, but with the hostages. It does appear that there is a deal to free 50 hostages. And this would include 30 children, so supposedly all of the children, mothers, if they can find them, of those children, and then others, women. Uh, at this point, no men and soldiers, but we're looking at a total of 50, including 30 children, their mothers, and um, the uh, and other women. And I guess I want to fill you in on what are Israelis saying about this possible deal and also how is the deal structured? Because for a long time, Israel said no ceasefire, no ceasefire until all the hostages are freed. And alas, Israel is agreeing to a ceasefire. So let's lay out the conditions real quick. First of all, this would be a four-day pause in the fighting. So I guess you could call it a four-day ceasefire. And hostages would be released in stages. So it wouldn't be all 50 at once. It would be 12 starting, we believe, on Thursday, and then another 12 the next day, and then the remaining, um, I guess it would be 16 um, over the next two days. And during that time, the IDF would be allowed to operate drones for surveillance over Gaza, but they would not be firing, going into neighborhoods, and doing what they have been doing um, <clears throat> over the past six weeks. So it would take place also, the hostage release would be in five stages. So in stage one, according to what's been talked about, the hostages would be turned over to the Red Cross, and the Red Cross would then turn them over to the IDF. Stage two would be that the IDF brings them into Israel where they would have medical checkups to assess their health and well-being. Stage three, only then would they be reunited with their families. In stage four, the IDF and security services would assess them and decide who is fit to be debriefed. And in stage five, those hostages who are able to be debriefed would be. And this is a very important stage. Uh, every hostage who comes out would be able to provide information about what Hamas is doing, how they are treating the prisoners, the hostages. It's very unlikely that any hostage would actually be able to give information about where they were because it's assumed that they were immediately taken underground into this vast tunnel network, reminding you 300 plus miles of tunnels underneath Gaza, crisscrossing underneath the Gaza Strip. They'd most likely be blindfolded and have no way to actually tell where they were 
However, there's other information they could be providing, and that's why the debrief is so important. And someone asked a really great question. I said, if they can find them, the hostages, this is a very big point, which a lot of the world, I don't think, realizes. There are 240 hostages in Gaza. Hamas supposedly has um, close to 180, 190 of them. Islamic Jihad might have 20. But there are supposedly 30 hostages who are being held neither by Hamas or Islamic Jihad. They were taken... There's almost no better word for it. They were taken kind of as souvenirs. When Hamas broke through the border on October 7th, a number of Palestinian, a number of Gazans, mostly teenagers and some young adult men, just broke through the fence with them. I've heard that there were Gazans as young as 13 coming into Israel. And some of them simply kidnapped Israelis for their own sport, taking them to their own houses. Uh, in their own apartments in Gaza, just to just to have an Israeli hostage. And part of this deal right now is that during this four-day ceasefire, Hamas will do all it can to help locate these other 30. Because one of the conditions of this hostage uh, swap is that uh, there will be future swaps negotiated so that uh, more, even even possibly after the four days, they could extend the ceasefire to allow more hostages to come out. So locating these 30 missing and acting uh, hostages is one of the priorities uh, of Israel and uh, it seems of as Hamas as well. Now, what is Israel giving up in exchange for these 50 released hostages? Uh, as we noted, the four-day ceasefire, but also Israel, Israel would be releasing uh, a number of prisoners in Israeli jails, Palestinian prisoners. However, it is only women and I think female teenagers. And another condition, no murderers. So no one who is murdered in Israeli. This is very much in reaction to the 2006 kidnapping of Gilad Shalit. Gilad Shalit was held for five years. And when he was released five years later uh, in 2011, Israel gave up more than a thousand prisoners a third of whom had murdered Israelis, and several of whom have gone on to murder more Israeli Jews, including Sinwar, who is the head of Hamas right now, believed to be in Gaza, sitting in a bunker, hiding out somewhere. But he was in Israeli prison. And there are those who protested the exchange for Gilad Shalit, in 2011, saying that when you release these this many murderers, it's going to come back and bite us. And lo and behold, Sinwar, who is believed to be the mastermind of the October 7th uh, terrorist uh, attack, was in Israeli prison. So it's worth asking if that exchange was actually worth it. Now, obviously, in retrospect, we can't go back in time and undo it. But there are those who are protesting this hostage swap right now. Not many, but Itamar Ben-Gvir on the far right is protesting it. And he is saying this is going to be the same thing that happened last time when we released all those prisoners for Gilad Shalit. Eventually, these people will come back and get us. We shouldn't be releasing anyone. We shouldn't be allowing any fuel in. We shouldn't be giving any food until all hostages are released. And I must say, I typically do not agree with Itamar Ben-Gvir on anything. 
And I don't agree with him here. However, he does have a point. I think he does have a point worth listening to that last time Israel gave up so many prisoners, um, we in a way did pay for it, uh, even possibly with this attack on October 7th. So his complaints aren't to be taken lightly. Now that said, Overall, most Israelis are in favor of this deal. Even political parties who are usually opposed to Benjamin Netanyahu, like the Labour Party, are supporting the deal. And almost all Israelis, I mean, certainly all the Israelis that I've spoken to are in favor of it. We need to get the hostages back. And I think it's worth noting that this probably is a pretty good deal for Israel. I think Israel comes out ahead here for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, getting this many back and not releasing any prisoners who committed murder, releasing only women and teenage females, that's a pretty good, um, that's that's exactly who you would want to release. Um, also, uh, I think we really have to trust the IDF here. We have to trust the Israeli army and the security services that any four-day pause, although it would give Hamas time to regroup, that it wouldn't be so devastating that the IDF could not recover and could not continue its operation. And you know, Netanyahu has made clear that he, you know, the op the operation is continuing after this. This is not the type of thing where um, after this um, the the operation would change in any way. It's expected that it will be business as usual and pushing even further into Gaza once this exchange uh, happens. Now, there's one other thing I do want to point out, and that is that during the ceasefire in uh, in 2006, as you remember, that's when uh, Gilad Shalit was kidnapped, there was a ceasefire, and it was during the ceasefire uh, that Gilad Shalit was kidnapped. So another factor is here is how much can we trust Hamas? Because you know, last time we had the, the ceasefire, that's when Shalit was taken. So uh, I, I I am pretty certain that if Hamas were to break this ceasefire, Israel would again immediately resume its operations against Hamas. And I also think that this deal demonstrates that Hamas is in a desperate situation. Most Israelis really do feel that the ground operation is successful, that it's working well. We have penetrated further into, we've, we've encircled Jabalaya, which is the last remaining stronghold in northern Gaza. The IDF is currently warning Gazans to flee southern Gaza, the idea being that we are now going to do in southern Gaza what we did to northern Gaza, the bombing campaign, finding the tunnels, blowing up the tunnels. The IDF claims that it has blown up several tunnels and tunnel entrances. The uh, tunnel network under Shifa Hospital, that's where the headquarters are, according to the IDF, that was covered by a very heavy blast door that was thought to be impenetrable. And today the IDF was able to blow through that blast door, allowing them access to the headquarters underneath. So the IDF really is making great progress um, in Gaza up until now by all accounts with South Gaza being next. Now, as I mentioned in the invitation to this, um, to this conversation, there are two X factors that could drastically change how the IDF operates in Gaza from this point on and what that operation will look like. And those two unknowns, those two X factors are the fact that we will soon need to be fighting this war underground, 
That's the first one. So, so far, we've been fighting from the air, from the land, from the sea. But Hamas is underground. And at some point, once we've taken care of above ground, then we go into their territory below ground. And they know that below ground territory much better than we do. Uh, sadly, we lost four soldiers, I believe, perhaps it was five last week when they opened a, an entrance to one of the tunnels and it was booby trapped and killed all four, uh, five of them. One of whom, as I mentioned, had, uh, was a teacher who had taught at SAR high school in Riverdale, New York. Uh, at one point, these were adults, men with wives and families in the reserves and so this idea of having to go underground could drastically change the nature of the war. So the other X factor, which, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people might not have thought of, is simply the weather. We are moving into the winter season. We're having a lot of heavy rains now in Israel. And this can really change Israel's ability to fight this war, how quickly it can move, what kind of equipment it can use. So much of the equipment being used right now is from the combat engineers and the armored corps. I was a tank soldier. And let me tell you, once it begins raining, the tank becomes a completely different machine. The extent to which they get stuck in the mud, uh, that you have to clean them, oil them, take them apart uh, to make them maneuverable. Uh, it really could change a lot uh, having to maneuver in the, I'm just picturing all the sand and grit and all the destroyed buildings being soaked, what that would do to these uh, combat engineering tractors and the tanks in Gaza. So something as simple as the weather could be a huge factor in how the war is fought from this point on. So uh, that is sort of uh, where we stand right now in Gaza and uh, where we stand with the hostages. And I already see a lot of questions, so I'll start getting to those in a second. I do wanna move on to, well, let's talk about uh, another piece of IDF news, which I'm probably sure wasn't covered that much here, but which is pretty significant, I think, in Israel. This week, for the first time ever, Israel sent women into a combat zone. Uh, women can serve in combat units in the IDF. They can serve in infantry units, in artillery. There are certain units of the Air Force, anti-aircraft. But the rule is that women never cross the borders. They never cross the border into enemy territory, into Lebanon, never going into Gaza, never going into Jordan or Egypt. The reason being that if they were, God forbid, captured, um, we don't want to imagine what our enemy would do to them. So it's really protecting our women soldiers that we don't allow them to cross the border. But this week, for the first time, uh, women combat soldiers did cross into Gaza. They are in a mixed gender unit called Palchatz, Plugat Chilutz. That means, Chilutz means to save or to rescue. This is a search and rescue unit. Uh, perhaps you've seen that when there's an earthquake in Haiti or uh, in Nepal, the IDF will send, or even in, uh, in Miami uh, a couple of years ago in Surfside, the IDF will send a unit of palchats of um, search and rescue. They have an orange beret, and that's a mixed gender unit. And they specialize in going into destroyed buildings and using very sophisticated equipment to look for survivors or to open up 
pieces of concrete and cement that have been welded together in order to look for survivors. And in this case, what they're doing is they're going into Gaza, buildings that have been bombed by the IDF. They are now going into these destroyed buildings, attempting to open them up, not looking for survivors, but looking for entrances to tunnels and uh, other intelligence for information that we might be able to recover from these buildings. So this is significant news. Um, it's And it's special news, too. I think the IDF has always prided itself on uh, having women serve at the highest levels possible. As an IDF soldier myself, I can tell you that they do some of the most important work, but often don't get nearly enough credit. The flip side of this is that in another piece of news out of Israel this week, women who serve as tatspitaniyot. Uh, this is the unit that sits along every border with Israel, and their job is to use sophisticated equipment to basically watch the border at all times. At all times. They're looking basically at screens 24-7, watching for any suspicious activity. They are literally the eyes and ears of the IDF looking for any threats. And it has been coming out slowly but consistently that for not weeks but for months leading up to October, October 7th, these young women soldiers whose job it is to monitor the borders, they were telling their superiors, their commanders and their officers that they were seeing a high amount of unusual activity in Gaza, including what we now realize are dress rehearsals for October 7th complete with white pickup trucks, and they had a mock tank built in Gaza that they practiced taking over. Every detail of October 7th, they were rehearsing right in front of our eyes. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the question is not, how did we miss it? We did not miss it. We saw it. The question is, why did we ignore it? And what a lot of the young women this week are saying is that their complaints, their uh, posts were ignored by their male superiors because of sexism that they've always felt that as young women in this very, you know, macho army, they were often ignored and that their complaints were not listened to. So this is the flip side. On the one hand, we have a mixed gender unit going into Gaza for the first time. But at the same time, we're hearing accusations of sexism being possibly the reason that the young women whose job it is to monitor the border were completely ignored by their male superiors. Now, again, Israel has collectively decided to put all of this aside, and after this is done, to investigate everything that happened, there are going to have to be major changes in the army. It's expected that a lot of people will step down, including possibly the chief of staff. Uh, but for the time being, it's worth noting that both of these events happened in the same week, and I, I consider that um, significant. I want to talk a little bit about the Arab community in Israel. Um, you know, in 2018, Israel passed the nation state law. And a lot of people have, uh, some people were for it. Some people have been uncomfortable with it. But really what it, the nation state law did was solidify once and for all that Israel, first and foremost, is the place for Jewish self-determination. And it really did sort of make it clear that every other group was although afforded equal rights, was second class. And for that reason, many groups had a problem with it, including some Jewish Israelis, but also certainly Israel's Arab communities. And it's getting, it's being discussed right now in Israel that maybe this nation state law needs to be repealed outright or at minimum needs to be changed. And you're even hearing Likud 
uh, ministers on the right saying that we need to change, amend the nation state law. And what they're specifically saying now, even Bibi Netanyahu this past week said that the status of the Druze people needs to be enshrined in the nation state law. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to enshrine a certain people in the nation state law. I, I would imagine it means acknowledging them, acknowledging that they have full rights or acknowledging them as being important to Israel, but it's, it's very vague language to enshrine them. Um, I think the larger point here is that the Arab communities were finally noticing the Jewish communities, how, how much of a debt we do owe them. First of all, for not turning on us on October 7th, the way Hamas implored them to, but also for the sacrifices that they've been making. When I spoke to you, I think it was two weeks ago, I mentioned that the uh, battalion commander of the 53rd Armored Battalion, the Lieutenant Colonel Salman Habaka um, from the north in the Galilee, he's a Druze soldier and he was killed in battle. And since then, five more. So of the 66 soldiers who have been killed uh, since this war broke out, six of them, just about you know 9%, just under 10% are Druze, Arab Druze. And I, I think that's a wake-up call for a lot of Israel, uh, especially when you have most of the Haredi Jewish population not serving in the army at all. And this is another reason why I feel October 7th really is a turning point, a seminal moment in Israeli history, one that we will look back on, you know, even in 100 years, that it will change, I believe, so many things. How Israelis vote, how coalitions are formed, how money is allocated, uh, and also possibly the status of uh, the 22% of Israel's population that is not Jewish living inside Israel. Uh, and along with that, it's worth noting that they're now speaking in Israel about allocating money to build bomb shelters in Bedouin communities in the south of Israel. And it sounds like a no-brainer, but uh, up until now, there really haven't been many bomb shelters, possibly none at all. I guess I would have to look into it and find out exactly what the status is. Uh, but they are completely underserved, the Bedouin population. And they've had uh, a number of Bedouin people were kidnapped and killed on October 7th. So I think what Israel is realizing is that the suffering that Jewish Israelis feel on October 7th, uh, it's not limited to us, that the entire population has felt it. The entire population is giving back and uh, and and fighting, and uh, certainly in the case of the Druze soldiers, and that we need to reexamine ourselves and what our society looks like. At the same time, there was a small incident in Bnei Brak, the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood this week, where they were yelling at and mocking and spitting on a reserve soldier uh, who was in the neighborhood. So you still continue to have a lot of the ultra-Orthodox who receive a lot of money from the government to not work, um, you know, disparaging our, our soldiers and the, the whole system of Israel. So this is something that Israel is going to need to grapple with but I think it's been brought to light and it's on the table and Israelis are realizing that whatever government comes next is going to have to deal um, with these issues. I want to get to uh, I want to get to your questions, but uh, let's just really quickly give a little um, recap of where we stand politically. So in the latest polls, it is showing that uh, Netanyahu has an approval rating of 20% or maybe just a bit lower, 19, 18%. But in the newest poll, I think I mentioned that last week, but and that hasn't changed. But in the newest poll that did come out, it said that only 4% of Jewish Israelis believe that Netanyahu is telling the truth when he speaks about 
the war. And that's, I mean, that's incredible that 96% of the population doesn't believe that he's telling the full truth. So the question of what happens next politically, I think it's pretty much assumed in Israel that uh, Netanyahu is finished. The question is when? Some are now even talking that it could happen before the war is done. I think a lot of people assume that uh, we would keep the prime minister in place until the war is over. But this week, Yair Lapid of the Yesh Atid party, which means there is a future party, uh, is calling has been calling for Netanyahu to step down, mostly just because of the mismanagement of the civilian operation. You know, Israel continues to function right now on the civilian side because of volunteers. Just about everything is being done by volunteers. Uh, the fact that at the beginning of this broadcast, I put up the email address of someone from the government who now, six and a half weeks in, they're finally waking up and thinking of a way to bring in communities from around the world to support Israel. It shouldn't take six and a half weeks. The reason Israel is functioning is because of the volunteers, whether it's finding housing, finding food, uh, schools. Um, my wife has begun tutoring a child from the south of Israel who's now been relocated to Ra'anana. And this is, this is another thing that's being exposed, that you have children from the south being brought out of the south. They're being brought into neighborhoods in Tel Aviv, Ra'anana, Netanya. And what's, what they've found is that the kids don't have the edu educational background to be in their grade level in Ra'anana. My hometown, Ra'anana, is, is a pretty well-off town, a good socio, you know, socioeconomically strong, uh, good school system. But what we're seeing is that kids in the South aren't strong enough academically to fit into our school system. There is a what we call in Hebrew a par, a difference, a delta. Uh, and so we need to bring those kids up to speed just so they can stay at grade level in the communities they're being put in. Um, so again, a lot of inequality that Israel is going to have to deal with when the next government comes in. But it's pretty much assumed by everyone that it will not be Netanyahu. Uh, it, and Benny Gans is very strong and people look up to him. He's a former chief of staff and they trust him and they feel that he has been a voice of sanity all along. Uh, so I would not be surprised if he, in fact, is the um, the next prime minister of Israel. And just another another little piece about Netanyahu of news that came out this week is that the top intelligence officer in the IDF, it was revealed that on two separate occasions, he sat with Netanyahu and warned him that because of the judicial overhaul and reform, the country was particularly vulnerable and that Hamas and Hezbollah were going to find a way to capitalize it and attack. And uh, we see that Netanyahu, for the most part, ignored him. When I hear news like that, it makes me wonder how Netanyahu is able to stay on this long at all. I think it's simply a matter of with the momentum we have with the war happening and hostages being released, we just don't need another shock. We don't need another change. We would rather ride this out and uh, let the IDF be successful in Gaza without throwing a curveball in there. Uh, but most Israelis are assuming that he is finished. Um, uh, let me jump over to the questions real quick. Um, so this last one, someone mentioned diaspora cities. Yes, this is a new thing. Um, I had a phone call yesterday with a day school in Toronto that I might be going there in the spring to perform and do some teaching. And they mentioned that while I'm in town, I might do a special session with the Israeli families who've been relocated from the south of Israel to Toronto, that they have 15 families. Many of them are just mothers and children. The dads have stayed behind in reserve duty. 
But uh, I've heard of other communities, and Rochelle here in her note to me noted that Chicago has received a number of families where the fathers are staying back. So this is apparently a phenomenon all over North America, perhaps in Europe as well, but certainly North America, that Israeli families are being relocated. And you can imagine, this is a, imagine the transition. I mean, not only is your dad back in Israel fighting, possibly literally in the Gaza Strip, but now you're being relocated to Toronto, Chicago, a place where you don't speak the language, a new community. Um, it must be extremely frightening for these kids, but at the same time, I think it really is a sign of the unity we are seeing in the Jewish community right now. Um, I don't know that this would have happened 20 years ago, but something has changed. People are realizing that we are one people. Part of it might be the anti-Semitism that we are all experiencing and seeing, uh, but it's a good sign that we are taking each other in, um, and that bodes well for the future of the Jewish people. Uh, I want to... So someone asked, how many tunnel miles of the estimated 300 miles of tunnels have been destroyed? You know, from what I know, for the most part, we're destroying the entrances to the tunnels. The IDF has actually developed a new sponge bomb. That's sponge, like you do the dishes with, and bomb. And with this little sponge bomb, it's something that uh, looks like about the size of a large Ziploc bag, from what I've heard. And you can throw it into a tunnel, and then it the chemicals mix and uh, it expands and blocks off the entrance to the tunnel. So definitely part of the strategy is to destroy the tunnels, but another part is just to close the tunnels and make the entrances um, sealed so that no one can get in or out. Now, of course, the big challenge is always where the hostages are. Why is it so important to get the hostages out? Well, reason number one, of course, is to get them out, bring them home alive, reunite them with their families. But the other reason is because our military campaign cannot continue at full strength as long as there are hostages there, because we don't want to be bombing our own people. We don't want to be sealing our own people into these tunnels. Uh, and so that's why the hostages play you know, such a critical role here, why they are such a it's it's so different that we're fighting this war with the hostage question having to be taken into account. Um, someone said Hamas clearly doesn't care about the citizens, so why would you think they're requiring a ceasefire? Hamas is requiring a ceasefire because they want to regroup. They are on their heels. They need and want to get stronger and that they have no way of doing it. Um, I think they also, you know, why would Hamas be motivated to find these 30 hostages who are unaccounted for, who are just souvenirs with families. I think Hamas knows that any that this bombing campaign, this military campaign will not end until all the hostages are accounted for. And uh, that is why they are that is why they they want to find them for their own. It's believe, of course, it's not for humanitarian reasons. It's for their own sake of uh, survival. Um, but I think it even, you know, the, the, the theory in Israel all along has been a strong military campaign will lead to better conditions for releasing the hostages. And I think we're seeing that right now. This is a pretty good deal for Israel, and it's because of the amount of pressure we have been putting on Hamas. Now, I, like so many people, are afraid of what can happen during those four days. I mean, you, you don't want to give Hamas any time. Part of me believes that we should just keep the pedal to the metal and not take any break at all. But it, uh, at the same time, how can you say no to releasing all the children, you know, 30 children in the Gaza Strip for six weeks? Um, 
that's criminal on them. And at some point it becomes criminal on us if we don't do all we can to get them out. So, um, you know, so I, I think that's why, that's why we're doing it. Other questions people have. Um, how do we know how many hostages are still alive? That's a great question. We're trying to use intelligence to figure out. We've already found out that some of the hostages were killed. Uh, we found either their pieces of bone um, near the fence that as they were being taken into uh, Gaza, they were killed or had died. And so they were simply left there. Uh, there were there was a soldier, Noah, I think is her first name, who was, it's been determined that she was killed uh, at Shifa Hospital, that she was being held in an apartment. The apartment was bombed. She was injured, and uh, but she was not killed from that injury. She was taken to Shifa Hospital, hospital where she was murdered by Hamas, and uh, and then her body simply thrown out and left. And uh, I, I do believe her body was recovered this week. So we do not know for sure how many are alive and how many are dead. I will say the more that are alive, the better it's, it is for Hamas as well, because ultimately what they want are bargaining chips, and uh, the more live hostages they have the more bargaining chips they have um but it's a you're right it's a completely cynical population that will use their own uh children and their own citizens as human shields and uh, i don't know if you've been following this but over the past few weeks israel has been releasing more and more taped conversations and video uh of of uh hamas uh, terrorists talking about how they use ambulances and how they use hospitals and, and need to use the uh, patients as human shields. So again, uh, the whole PR issue, what's wrong with Israeli PR? You know, it, the facts are out there. I don't think Israel packages its PR the best way it could. I think it could do a better job of packaging its PR and putting it forward and presenting it. But anyone who truly wants to know the facts um, can. Uh, anyone who wants to see the maps has the ability to do so and listen to the rec these recordings can. Um, it's just a matter of some people not wanting to and, and not uh, not wishing to. So <laughs> Neil Katz said, Tyler, and Neil, respond to that text. Are there, are there actually uh, refugees from Israel in Tyler, Texas? I'd be curious to hear. So what I want to uh, talk about now is the death toll of Israeli soldiers, and specifically the unique ways that Israelis count um, the casualties among soldiers. And I'll, I'll start with a little story from uh, from my own life. You know, I don't know about you guys and, and your marriages, but, you know, once in a while, my, ma my, uh, my wife will come home with uh, a pair of shoes and I'll say to her, how much were those new shoes? And she'll say, well, normally they were $130, but they were half off, so they were 65. But then I had a coupon and it got me another 10% off. And in exchange for buying them, I was able to get a credit for another $30. So really they only cost $10. You know, like there's this sort of crazy math that goes into making me think it's actually a lot cheaper than it really was when the bottom line is she had to pay $70 and $70 is 70 no matter what. Well, as strange as it sounds, Israelis sometimes use that kind of what you might call magical thinking when talking about how many soldiers have been killed in battle. And the reason is, 
it is so difficult for Israelis to swallow the idea of even one soldier dying because we think of soldiers as our sons, our neighbors, our children, our friends, which they are. It's personal. Because they're so close to us and mean so much to us, we have to trick ourselves into thinking that fewer have died than actually have. So if you ask Israelis how many soldiers have died, you are there's two answers you might get. One is that someone will say to you, 66, which is the number. But there's also a chance that they'll say 66, but 11 were in that Humvee two weeks ago where they opened the door at the wrong time and Hamas threw a grenade inside. And four of them were by friendly fire, which the IDF is determining that a number of soldiers actually have been killed by friendly fire in Gaza. So it's actually 66, but much lower. And, and you see what Israelis are doing. What they're saying is that those 11 who died in the accident, where they opened the door to the Humvee when they shouldn't have, this happened two weeks ago, and Hamas was able to throw a grenade inside, it was a mistake. They shouldn't have opened that door. And so what Israelis are saying is, yeah, although 66 have been killed, it didn't need to be that high. And because a few were by friendly fire, it didn't need to be that high. And what Israelis are doing is they are preparing themselves psychologically for the future because we don't want to leave, we don't want to believe that more soldiers are going to continue to die. Even though we know that the longer this operation goes on, it's inevitable that more will be killed. We have to kind of trick ourselves into thinking that not all of those deaths are actual deaths, that not all of them needed to happen, that because they could have been avoided if only those soldiers hadn't opened the door, and if only those soldiers weren't killed by friendly fire, because they could have been avoided, the number should be lower, and that means there will be lower numbers moving forward. Israelis are so uncomfortable with the idea of soldiers dying that we have to make the narrative work for ourselves in order to stay sane. And sort of on that note, before I conclude, I want to share a short movie that was put out. Uh, there's a soldier named Roy who is from Ra'anana. Um, he was killed last week in Gaza. Um, he went to the high school that my daughter went to. She knew him. They weren't close by any means, but she knew who he was. People, you know, they'd hung out together. Uh, and he was killed uh, last week and buried in Ra'anana. And um, they put together a short minute and a half movie that I think will speak for itself. So um, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to screen share and just show this to you. Oh, here we go.
So as you can see there, the uh, entire town came out for Roe, and um, this is this is happening in towns all over Israel right now. Um, you know that's the Israeli way. When you know, God forbid, a soldier dies, the entire town comes out for him or her. Um, my wife and one of my daughters attended the funeral. There were thousands of people there, most of whom didn't know Roe, but that's that's simply what you do in Israel. Um, everyone everyone goes. And you asked if there was sound. There, the only sound is piano music. So um, I'll post it again. Like I'll I'll post it online and send out a link to it. But uh, most of what you just need to see there is just how the town uh, came out and uh, lined the streets as his hearse uh, made its way from his parents' home to to the cemetery. Um, but that's, you know, that's Israeliness. Israeliness is uh, that kind of uh, unity when a, a soldier passes and the coming together and supporting the family and going to the shiva call, going to the funeral, even though you don't necessarily know that family um, personally. Once again, I want to thank all of you for participating. It means a lot to me. It seems that we have a nice community here who's able to come together once a week. Toda Rabbah to all of you. Rak Shalom. Only peace to all of us. Have a great week, a great Thanksgiving, and uh, I'll see you soon. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions, Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, Drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy, and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.